0: Leading up to election day, the national polls continue to show Joe Biden is in the lead over President Trump. But there's been this lingering skepticism about the polls since the 2016 election. Weren't they wrong the last time? There's a few things that are different this time around. Polls are doing a better job of reading Trump's base, there's fewer undecided voters, and then there's a bigger focus on state polls. For more on why there's some more reasons to trust the polls this time, we'll speak to Chris Kahn, polling editor at Reuters.
1: So let's back up to 2016. There are a lot of things that the polls got right, and there's things that the polls got wrong in 2016, and it's worth knowing them if we're talking about how to read them this time around. Nationally, most polls, including our poll, with the Reuters-Ipsos poll, showed that Hillary Clinton was ahead in the national popular vote. Our final reading before that election, she was ahead by about two percentage points, and lo and behold, Hillary Clinton won the national popular vote by two percentage points. We were almost dead on. The problem was, though, when you start looking at state polls, trying to get a better read on whether it was going to be the Democrat or the Republican in Florida, North Carolina, Ohio, Pennsylvania, a lot of these states where it is very competitive. And secondly, the demographics are different from state to state. Each state is going to have a slightly different percentage of whites and minorities and educated and uneducated, etc. It's much tougher to model a poll for each of those states. And so After 2016, you know, as we all know, Hillary Clinton won the national popular vote, but lost the Electoral College. It was a surprise, especially given the consistent reading that we were getting nationally that year. Fast forward four years, most pollsters, including the Reuters-Ipsos poll, uh, has spent quite a bit of time and a lot of resources taking a look at their methodologies, looking at how they're gathering survey respondents, you know, how they're processing the information. And they spent a lot of time trying to figure out how can we better reflect the American public and especially within these states. One improvement that a lot of these pollsters have implemented over the past few years is something called an education link. We realize that a lot of public opinion polls, for whatever reason, just were not doing a very good job of gathering responses from people who do not have a college degree, specifically whites without a college degree increasingly, especially in the past few years, whites without a college degree are much, much more leaning towards voting for Republicans, much more supportive of someone like Donald Trump. And that was a big issue in 2016. They were underrepresented in a lot of polls. And so what did we do about it? A lot of polls, like the Reuters-Ipsos poll, instituted something called an education weight. That is, they take a look at the latest population statistics in an area. They find out how many people have a college education how many people do not. And they calibrate the respondent pool so that you have the people who do not have a college degree, specifically whites without a college degree, are represented to the level that they should be represented in that poll. And so we're really talking about apples and oranges here. It's a very different instrument that we have now than we had in 2016.
0: And in 2016, whites without a college degree made a substantial portion of the electorate that year. It was 44%, according to Pew Research. So You know, if you're not giving them the proper weight in those polls, then you're going to miss a lot of that. Also, there's fewer undecided voters this time around. Last time there was no incumbent president. It was a choice between Hillary Clinton and and Donald Trump. This time President Trump is there and you're either voting for him or against him. So there's fewer undecided voters this time around.
1: This election is going to be different from 2016 specifically because of that. This is an election with an incumbent. It's an election in which one of the candidates has a clear track record of four years of being in the White House. I think that most Americans made their minds up about Donald Trump, love him or hate him, years ago, before coronavirus, before the Mueller investigation. They decided long ago how they were going to vote. There are fewer Americans this time around who are undecided. In 2016, 20 percent of likely voters all the way up until Election Day, we're not picking a side. That's one out of every five likely voter was telling us they didn't know. They were undecided between Trump and Clinton. We only found out that basically in the final week before that election, that a lot of these undecided voters decided that, you know, they were going to vote and they cast their ballots and a majority of them decided to lean towards voting for Trump over Clinton. And that really was the story of the election, especially in these key battleground states that Trump won by you know, a percentage point or less. This time around, it is much different. We're only seeing about 6 to 7% of likely voters say that they're undecided. It's much smaller. And so because of that, there is just less wiggle room here. Right now, we're looking at about a 10 percentage point leave for Biden over Trump. He already has more than 50%. And it's just going to be much harder for Trump to make up that ground, especially right. in the national poll.
0: And the last big thing that's different this time around, there's a bigger focus on state polls. You mentioned in your article, Reuters is running 36 polls in six battleground states this year, just to kind of get as much information as we can. And we're looking at tight races in Arizona, Florida, North Carolina, and Joe Biden maintains a lead in other places like Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Michigan.
1: We only did a handful of state polls in 2016. we greatly expanded that. There's a tremendous amount of resources that Reuters is expending and, and other outlets are expending to get more information from these battleground states. You can see it if you go on to a, a lot of news sites, a lot of these polling aggregators. They display all of the polling that you can look at. You can find polls in Alaska, Montana, a lot of places that there really wasn't a whole lot of information in 2016. And while these polls, it doesn't necessarily increase the accuracy, it does give you a lot more data to look at. You can check for inconsistencies. You can check for public opinion over a longer time frame, it really helps you get a better picture of, you know, public opinion in those locations.
0: Chris Kahn, polling editor at Reuters. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. One of the biggest storylines throughout the 2020 election has been that of early voting and mail-in voting. The numbers are changing constantly, but over 80 million people have already voted early in this election. That's more than half the total vote in 2016. So this means that likely the majority of ballots will be cast before Election Day for the first time in history. And there might be some delays in getting results as things are counted. For more on what to know about the early voting surge, we spoke to Amy Gardner, national political reporter at The Washington Post.
2: Basically, from the from um, from the from the moment voting began, whether it was people receiving their mail ballots in the mail after having requested them or... Early in person voting beginning, starting, I think, in Virginia and then moving on to Georgia and North Carolina and Texas and on and on. The lines, as you noted, have just been astonishing. Uh, People have wanted to vote. This year is really becoming the year of the vote in an amazing way because we thought that the pandemic would make it more difficult. We thought that President Trump's uh, attacks on mail balloting and claims that there's fraud in mail balloting without any evidence that that's the case would you know discourage voting. Uh, we did not know that the you know, George Floyd uh, death and the ensuing uh, social unrest would translate into voting. That was entirely uncertain. That just doesn't always happen with civil unrest. And yet all of these things appear to have actually increased people's drive to, to vote basically.
0: Let's talk about what we know, what we're seeing from these early votes. Obviously, we, we don't know what those votes are individually, but a lot of times this stuff uh, skews towards Democrats, although Republicans have started uh, ramping up their mail-in voting and voting in, you know, these early voting and person voting. Um, so what are we seeing there? And, and any states in particular that have some surprising data?
2: Yeah, so uh, there are, um, by my count, there are 19 states where you can actually know the party affiliation of the voter who's cast their ballots. And in those 19 states, only three show an advantage in the early vote for Republicans. All the others, including red states like Oklahoma and Kentucky show an advantage in the early vote for voters who are registered Democrats. As you know, it's very important to remember, we don't know how people are voting, but we do know that there are a lot of folks who consider themselves traditional Republicans who are voting for Biden. And I don't know if there is a reverse trend of Democrats who are voting for Trump. So, uh, you know, a lot of that has to do with the fact that Trump discouraged mail balloting, accused Election officials trying to promote mail balloting and making it easier of uh, trying to encourage fraud uh, without any evidence that that's the case. But what happened was that had a really discouraging effect on Republicans voting by mail, which was kind of ironic because the Republican Party actually revolutionized mail balloting in Florida 20 years ago and made it a really sophisticated early voting operation but that kind of went to pieces this year when president trump started attacking mail balloting so one of the reasons you see this advantage is simply the rhetoric and the fact that democrats are more trusting of it than republicans but uh that that advantage is starting to narrow in some key states uh as more and more republicans are actually going to vote early in person that's true in north carolina we think it's true in georgia And we know it's true in Florida. And obviously those are all very important battlegrounds. So figuring out whether there will be enough Republicans left out there to close the gap that exists in some of these states is the million dollar question of the election cycle.
0: And what are the profiles of these voters? Who is voting early? We're seeing huge turnouts in uh, black communities. We're also seeing new voters and unaffiliated voters. I mean, it's not just this uh, uh, Republican and Democrat thing, you know everybody is turning out which is such a great thing really It's
2: true I mean the unaffiliated voter is is not to be disregarded I mean in, um, in Florida for instance where something like six million people have voted one.2 1.3 million of those voters are uh, NPAs or no party affiliation and how the no party affiliation voters fall? it's probably the roadmap to knowing who wins Florida and who wins a lot of other States where the unaffiliated decide the outcome Uh, folks on both sides of the aisle in North Carolina, for instance, think that the unaffiliated voters are going to decide the outcome of the election there. So uh, it's very interesting that so many unaffiliated voters are turning out as well. And you're absolutely right that you're seeing a lot of enthusiasm, enthusiasm among black voters. Uh, We have, uh, interviewed dozens of black voters standing in line on the very first day of in-person voting in their states Talking about why they're out there About how they're willing to stand in line for 11 hours for five hours Whatever it took because they were so angry about the politics of this year. They don't like president trump They don't like the ways in which they believe he's tried to make it harder for them to vote And it's almost as if he awakened the sleeping giant and prompted people to be more insistent upon exercising the right to vote. It is important to point out that it is not only, uh, you know, people of color who tend to vote Democratic or other Democratic groups that are turning out. Texas has the absolute highest turnout rate of anywhere in the country. It's well over 80 percent of 2016 levels already before we even get to Election Day. But it's really interesting because the, the, the highest turnout is in a very uh, you know populous growing suburb of Austin that's turning blue right now, but it's also in a county outside of Dallas Fort Worth that's very conservative. It's in a tiny rural community of 9,000 people in the center of the state. It's everywhere, and so I think it's really important for for the, you know the listeners and the voters to remember that. The enthusiasm is on both sides right now. The people who want Trump to to win a second term are extremely enthusiastic about voting for him. And so, again, this is a this is a real uh, down to the wire uh, calculation of of who's going to win, because it just all depends on who turns out on Election Day.
0: Amy Gardner, national political reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks
2: a lot. Take it easy.
0: Another story that developed this week, Keith Raniere, the founder of Nexium, which some have referred to as a sex cult, was sentenced to 120 years in prison for sex trafficking and fraud on Tuesday. Women in a secretive sect of Nexium were said to be forced into sex with Raniere and also branded with his initials. For more on this, we'll speak to Pilar Melendez, reporter for the Daily Beast. She was in the courtroom and tells us how it went down.
3: Throughout the trial, Keith Raniere was pretty emotionless. He didn't really respond to any of the very grotesque accusations that were being hurled at him throughout the six-week trial. And during the sentencing on Tuesday, it wasn't any different. He kept composure. He really didn't have a response. He actually spoke right before the sentencing was announced. And it was the first time where he acknowledged that he had listened to everyone's testimony, that he had heard what everyone said. And while he still maintains that he's innocent and it's a scene that he has said before, he did express remorse to these people and that it was the first time that there was any sort of acknowledgement that he had actually heard what he said. Now, it's surprising that he had no reaction and that even when he was faced with 120 years in prison, that he had no reaction. But it was the first time that we had heard or got any semblance that he was even grasping what they said or even took in what the accusations were against him.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's so crazy. And I have the quote here. I just want to read it real quick. Uh, I am Mm -hmm. deeply remorseful and repentant. It is true. I am not remorseful over the crimes I do not believe I have committed at all, but I am deeply remorseful of all this pain. So really just kind of on both sides of it, (laughs) but still just maintaining his innocence. The other thing that happened there before the sentencing was there was more than a dozen former Nexia members that were speaking out about him and their experiences with them. Uh, What did we learn there?
3: So there were 15 people that spoke, gave this victim impact statements before the sentencing. Of the 15 people, some of them are pretty big figures in the Nexium community now, Sarah Edmondson, Mark Vicente, some of the people that testified at the trial, Daniela, who was locked in the room for two years, Nicole, who was a DOS member and a slave to Allison Mack. But the most surprising person to me that spoke was Camilla, who was mentioned throughout the trial. She's the basis of the child pornography charges that Peter Neary was convicted for. And he was accused in the trial of having a relationship with Camilla since she was 15, taking photographs of her when she was underage, and having a years long relationship with her. In her victim impact statement on Tuesday, she described that she was basically encouraged not to speak to the authorities for the trial, kind of implied that someone in the Nexium world silenced her. Her attorneys that were provided from the next emerald told her not to testify or speak with the authorities. And this was her first time she was able to speak out and talk about the abuse that he had instilled upon her for over 12 years. And she basically goes through in pretty graphic detail from when she first met Keith Raniere when she was 13 years old and how he told her she was special to finally having a sexual relationship with him starting at 15 and just their relationship until she was in her late 20s and how the relationship made her isolate herself from all her friends and family Her story was very important in the trial also because her sister is Daniela, who was placed in a room for two years for telling Keith Raniere she didn't want to have a relationship with him anymore. And just hearing Camilla talk for the first time about how abused she was mentally, psychologically, sexually by Keith Raniere and how she felt like she couldn't even turn to the authorities even after Keith Raniere was arrested and a bunch of his co-conspirators pled guilty kind of speaks to a level of coercion and abuse yeah. that kind of surrounded Nexium this whole time. And, she was very strong. I think she only broke down once or twice, and it was her time, she said in her own words, it was her time to speak out, her time to tell her story, because she didn't know when she would get another opportunity like this.
0: That's really the underbelly of this whole story. On the surface, it was a group that had workshops to promote a greater self-fulfillment, things like that. It was called the Executive Success Program, which is where a lot of people kind of got in on this thing. The other uh, interesting thing that, that I wanted to mention also is that part of this, he's not supposed to have any contact with any other Nexium people. He still has right. a bunch of followers, and throughout this too, that we learned that you know he was still giving commands to people in the organization. He was even trying to get people to start a podcast with a cash prize, you know, right. kind, of, kind of like serial poke holes in the case or something, you know, to try to get them off type of thing. So he's still very much involved with the people that remain his followers.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the biggest hits to him was the sentencing that he is barred from speaking to any Nexium members. We've seen from sentencing memos and his own defense lawyers kind of alluded to it during the sentencing that Keith Raniere is still relevant in the Nexium community. It still exists. It still has followers. People believe that he did nothing wrong. Um, some pretty high name people too. Battlecard, Galactica's Nikki Klein was at the sentencing yesterday and made a statement afterwards that she thinks that he was denied his due process. And to cut him off from people who are the only people left that believe him, I think wounds him more than keeping him in jail. He's no longer relevant. He can no longer speak out and control these people that have been under his thumb for decades. And I think this having that sentence was particularly harsh in his opinion. I think that for him, that's going to be one of the hardest things to live with.
0: Yeah. I mean, It's a wild story from top to bottom, but Keith Rainieri, the founder of Nexium, sentenced to 120 years in jail for all this. Pilar Melendez, Mm -hmm. reporter at The Daily Beast, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. Don't forget to join us on social media, at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter, and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.